Well, we are continuing in the book of Ruth. Uh, it has been funny to me. I've had a really strong reaction with a lot of people really liking this sermon series and finding it interesting. Uh, I had somebody tell me that it was probably the most boring book in the Bible, and yet has been really interesting to hear about. Uh, sometimes with the Bible, you need some back knowledge. You need to understand it to, uh, to kind of get there. And uh, it's hard to read the Bible sometimes, especially the Old Testament. Uh, but I, as you see, if you do the work, you can start to really get some meaning out of it. If you've missed any of my Ruth sermons, again, they're online. You can listen to them. I printed hard copies in the back. Um, but uh, I can't possibly catch you up at this point to start the series. So in brief, if you haven't been here. Um, there was a lady named Naomi, and she and her husband go to Moab, uh, which the Israelites did not like the Moabites and weren't allowed to marry them. And there she loses her husband and her two sons. And her two sons have married Moabite women. Uh, so she returns with, with no one to care for her, no one to stand for her. She and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, return to Bethlehem. Ruth will not be accepted there as a Moabite, and also only men could own property, hire workers, or testify in court. So Ruth and Naomi are, are really vulnerable. They're only going to be able to really to beg or to glean for their livelihood. They're in danger. And Naomi says that God has dealt bitterly with her. And part of the theme of Ruth underlying all the story is, what is the nature of God? Is God really bitter towards us? Does he get angry with us or is God truly loving and kind? The word kind keeps coming up. Is God truly kind to us? In chapter 2, Ruth decides to go out and glean and she happens into a field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a worthy man, an honorable man who has compassion on Ruth, respects her character and work ethic, and treats her with kindness. He lets her glean in his fields. He tells no one to attack her because they probably would have as a Moabite woman who is vulnerable like that. Um, but he tells her to stay in his fields and he cares for her. And she's there uh, for, a, for several seasons, for the barley season, for the wheat season. It's a couple, six weeks, a couple months have gone by and she's been there uh, staying in the fields of Boaz. And still the question remains, is God going ultimately to take care of these women or will he continue to deal bitterly with them as they felt as they left Moab? The chapter ends with Naomi saying that Boaz is a close relative, one of our redeemers. Now, I have to explain redeemers a little bit because the primary thing we do is redeem coupons, right? We don't have a real language for redemption the way these people did. And it was just a different culture, a different time. In those days, especially in Jewish culture, you had two things that were really, really important to you. One was your name. Your name was important. Now, they didn't have last names the way we have last names. But your name meant your reputation. Okay? Your name meant who you are. So we sing a lot of praise songs and hymns talking about praising the name of the Lord. It's not just the Lord's name. Your name was your reputation. It was who you were. Your reputation was a big deal. So you worried about your name and you also worried about your land because your land was part of who you were. Your land was part of your name. And so especially in Israel, where your land was part of the promised land that was given to your family, you cared about your name and you cared about your land. 
Redemption was a system in place so that if somebody lost their name or lost their land, they could get it back. Okay, so if you were a slave and earned enough money to earn your freedom, you could redeem yourself. And actually, the word ransom is sometimes used for this same word in English translation. You could ransom yourself. If an army was captured by another army, so they were prisoners of war, you could ransom. You could redeem the army and pay them back. Your land could also be redeemed. So if you had hard times and had to sell your land, you could buy it back later. You would have the opportunity to do that. Also, if you had to sell your land, let's say there was a drought or some kind of thing like that, you fell on hard times, it was the responsibility of your family to try to redeem your land so that it would stay in the family. So it would stay in. So if somebody got in trouble, had to sell their land, the brothers might get together or one of the brothers might, might go ahead and buy the land, use the land, and then hopefully someday the brother could buy it back. But at least it would stay in the family. The trouble was redemption always had a cost. You had to diminish your own estate. So if I have my own property and my own animals and everything and I want to buy my brother's property, I've got to sell some of my possessions to get that property. Ultimately, it could be a business deal, right? could be good in the long run. But in the short run, whatever my sons would get would be diminished because I was adding this land. And if my brother or your brother had a wife who didn't have a son of their own, who could take the name in the land, then your job was to marry that woman and help her have a son. Now, the problem with that is you might already have a family of your own. Uh, This is a little tricky part of the Bible, by the way. One of the things the Bible never really says is that you're not allowed. um, The the Bible never really forbids polygamy. Okay, it just doesn't. But I will tell you in the Bible, whenever somebody has multiple wives and multiple families, it does not work out well. Okay, Uh, as you can imagine, it's hard enough to have one wife and one family. Right. Imagine the, the politics of keeping two families. I don't even understand it. Okay. In the Bible, but, but the Bible doesn't forbid polygamy in part because it was part of how that culture protected widows and children uh, who were at risk. Uh, and even today, there are cultures where that's still part of the system. But apparently it was not a great system and didn't work out all the time. Because all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, there, there's a concern over widows and orphans. Why? Because a lot of families weren't willing to pay the cost that it took to redeem the rest of the family. Okay, that's the system that we're in. This becomes a huge biblical image because in the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with Israel. And the language was that God had redeemed Israel, had ransomed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Okay, starting to understand the image now. Okay, God had come in and paid for and won with the plagues Israel's exit from Egypt. In fact, the Passover symbol symbolism of the lamb that uh, you would slay and put the blood over the door so that the angel of death, the last plague, the angel of death wouldn't come in and kill your firstborn. That Passover celebration was the celebration of God's redemption of Israel. And that was Israel's definition of who they were. That was their name. Okay, that was their land. It was the redeemed land and the redeemed name that God had given them when he had redeemed them. 
I mean, I hope your imagination is already sort of feeling this idea that if Jesus is our redeemer and at Easter he has the he, he dies on the cross for us. And that's the Jewish Passover celebration. I hope your imagination is already starting to go about how Jesus fills a lot of this image. And we're going to get to that in a future sermon. For right now, what we are told is that Boaz is a redeemer. So Boaz is one of these relatives who has the ability to come in and marry Ruth and take on her father's land, her father-in-law's land, and uh, thereby save the family. So Naomi hatches a plan to get Boaz's attention and perhaps help them find the security with him. Naomi knows the season. It's the barley and the wheat season. This means that Boaz and his workers have to go to the threshing floor. Now, none of you have probably been to a threshing floor, so let me explain. Threshing floor is a big, probably stone, uh, very hard floor that you would go to beat out your grains. So what you would do is lay your grains, whether it be wheat or barley, on the ground, and you would take rocks, you would take a hard stick and hit that against the floor, okay, so that you were breaking up the wheat and uh, the shaft, right? This would normally be a large flat area and it needed to be a windy area because what you would do is at night when it would cool down and you'd get a breeze, you would take like a pitchfork and you would raise the material up and then all the stuff that wasn't good would blow away in the wind and you'd be left with just your grain. So the, the, the act of striking was called threshing. The act of flipping it up in the air was called winnowing. So here we are. It's that season of the year. They've left the wheat and the barley, and now we're winnowing. So, so Naomi knows this. Naomi knows that they're in the evening going to go, and they're going to start this winnowing process. They're going to go late into the night till they get it done. And then they're going to sleep there because it was a large area that the whole community had to use. It's probably only one large stony area with the right breeze. So you had to sleep there and protect your grain. You had to sleep there and protect your grain, make sure no one stole your grain until you could move it the next day. This would have also included food and drink and gone well into the night. Now remember, this is the end of the season. This is the harvest. So you're excited. You've been working for a long time to grow these crops, to, to, to harvest these crops. And now you're excited because it's payday. Okay? It's payday. And so, so she knows he's going to be there. Naomi tells Ruth to bathe, get dressed, put on perfumes. I'm not sure she's really, really totally dressing up. Some have even suggested she's dressing up like it's a wedding. I don't think the text allows for that. I think she's just been gleaning a lot and spending a lot of time out in the fields. And so she fancies up a little bit. She gets herself cleaned up. She waits until the, towards later in the night. She waits in secret for the right moment until Boaz is tired and falls asleep. Then she is to go uncover his feet and lay at them and then wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. This plan seems clear to us, right? Ladies, how many of you won the heart of your man by laying at his feet on the threshing floor? It's a strange, it's a strange act. And it's complicated by the fact that um, there's some, there seems to be some innuendos going on here that suggest maybe, and scholars have suggested maybe this is sort of a, PG-13 encounter? I don't know. Um, I don't know how to say that well in church here. Okay. Um, But the way it talks about uncovering his feet, to uncover his biblical language for getting naked, 
Okay, the left reference to feet could be a euphemism for something else, or it could mean uncovering his legs. But how much of his legs are we uncovering here, uh, laying under the covers with him? Um, and to lie with someone in the Bible is normally followed by the announcement of a pregnancy, right? So the language implies almost that there's something not good about this encounter. It's certainly questionable, dangerous. Ruth could have been assaulted in a traveling at night. She or Boaz could have been accused of something even if nothing had happened. Boaz could have been tempted and taken advantage of her. I think this text is written to actually make us wonder about that. Okay? I think it's, it's written in such a way that it's meant for us to get a little tense. So if you were watching this with your kids and grandkids as a movie... You'd be grabbing the remote because you're not quite sure. You know what I mean? I'm ready to fast forward or stop and send the kids out of the room. I think that's the kind of tension that's meant to be set here by the way this is written. But there are a lot of details that I think make this an honorable encounter that that does not have anything that happens. Boaz is described as being in good spirits, but, but that doesn't mean that he's drunk. She lies perpendicular to him at his feet. He doesn't even wake up when he, she initially shows up, only wakes up later. And in, in the text, they're not alone. There's other people there. And Boaz and Ruth are both described as honorable and worthy. And it would actually be out of character for him to do anything. I think it's just meant to build the tension. Like this could have been bad. So Boaz wakes up in the night to find Ruth laying at his feet. By the way, I understand being woken up like this. I have a little daughter. She's six now. But if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night to find that somebody has stolen your covers and that your bed is a little more crowded than you were expecting it to be, uh, my daughter has done that to us on many occasions. And Boaz wakes up and is startled. But here is Boaz who's been thinking about his crops, thinking about all that belongs to him, thinking about his wealth, And he's lying there to protect what's his. He's lying there protecting what is under his care. And he wakes to find this Moabite woman under his garment. To have someone under your garment is uh, an image that Boaz has used in in part in an earlier chapter. In chapter 2, he talks about um, uh, Naomi and Ruth being under the wing of God. But wing is also another word for garment. And in fact, it's a metaphor for marriage. Still in Arabic countries to this day, there are places where when you agree to a marriage, a man will take his cloak and put it over his wife-to-be. Okay? So there's this great imagery. And think about how perfect the situation Naomi has set up is. He's in the mindset of caring for what he thinks, thinking about what what belongs to him and what he needs to care for. Um, She does this at night which is also kind of questionable, right? Except one of the things she's saying in this position of petition is, I trust you. I trust that you're not going to take advantage of me. I trust that you're an honorable man. And here's Boaz able to comment to Ruth without any peer pressure, okay? If she'd gone in the middle of the day, people could have been mad that because a woman wasn't allowed to set up her own marriage. Of course, Ruth has no one to set up a marriage for her. She's not allowed to do that. A man has to set up a marriage. But she takes this initiative. And, and people could be, Boaz could be turned off by that. Or other workers around him could say, you can't say yes, she's a Moabite woman. 
But by, in, by going to him at night, she's saying, I trust you, and I want you to do what you want to do. Okay, I, I don't want you to feel the pressure of having to marry me. I want you to have this opportunity, and I want to know from you, from your heart, what you want to do. It's a great plan Naomi has. The problem is it backfires. Okay, what she told Ruth to do was get dressed, go lay down, and when Boaz sees you, he'll tell you what to do. There was no plan of what to say, you understand? Boaz wakes up, there's a woman at his feet, and he says, who are you? Okay, Boaz is a little bit groggy. And let's be honest, if, if we're to be honest, that we as guys don't always pick on the, up on the clues that we should be picking up on, right? We as guys can be a little bit dense. He's groggy in the morning. He's a little bit dense. And he, who are you? And so now Ruth has to ad lib a little bit. She did not have a plan. Her plan, Naomi's plan was a much more subtle plan. Now Ruth gets bold. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, the, the, now the covers image makes sense to him. Okay? And he's already used this image of the wings of God being spread over Ruth. She's saying, be the answer to your own prayer that we heard about in chapter 2. Spread your wings over. You are a redeemer, and I'm asking for the protection of your wings. I'm asking you to consider marriage. So what will happen? Will Boaz take advantage of her? Will he reject this Moabite woman as everybody would have understood that he would? Will he be put off by how forward and aggressive she is? After all, she's not supposed to be arranging her own marriage. Furthermore, how can this work? She's a Moabite. He's a Jew. He's a wealthy field owner and she is a destitute gleaner. He's probably older than her while she is younger uh, especially since he's running the field and managing the field, and also the way he calls her daughter, which is not a derogatory term, it's a, a term of honor and respect, but it is a term that does seem to imply an age gap. You understand, this is a very Romeo and Juliet right here. This is Romeo and Juliet 2,500 years before Romeo and Juliet. And these two seem to be perfect for each other, both worthy. Both honorable, both people of character. And Boaz responds with kindness and character that we have continued to uh, see in this story and come to expect from him. Let me read his response again. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. And all my fellow townsmen... Know that you are a worthy woman. Notice the great words he's using here. He says worthy. When we're introduced to Boaz, he's called worthy. Now he's recognizing that Boaz is also worthy and has character. He also uses the word kindness for her. We talked about this word last week. The word kindness is the word has said. It means deep, loyal kindness. It's often, most often used of God. And it's used of Boaz and Boaz uses it of Ruth here. They are a great match, both worthy, both honorable. This seems to be a relationship of genuine mutual respect that we wonder if might, it might have turned into affection. Perfect. They're going to get together and live happily ever after, right? But there's, there's a hitch. 
Okay, there's another dilemma in our story. Another wrinkle that has to work, work out. Boaz is not the closest redeemer. Because there was uh, an advantage to redeeming a field, there was wealth to be uh, had in, in inheriting a field and buying a field. There was an intricate system of who got first rights to buy the redemption. Okay, And what Boaz says is, wait, there's a relative that's closer and he's got first dibs. And I have to, because he's a worthy guy, he has to respect that. So he tells her to lay down, sleep until the morning so she won't be assaulted on her way home in the middle of the night. And he will go and talk to this relative. And if he'll marry her, fine. If not, Boaz promises to marry her. And so he gives her grain. She kind of picks up her outer outfit. He lives, loads her up with grain, sends her home as a promise to her mother, Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth will have their security. But will it be with Boaz, who has proven to be such a man of character? Or will it be with this strange guy she doesn't even know exists and has never met before? Is this a good relative a, and also a reputable relative? Of course, the story will now leave them waiting because he's got to go in the next day and find this man and try to work it out. And unfortunately for us, that's where our story stops, too. My favorite part of this sermon series has been the cliffhangers and the look on your faces like you have got to be kidding me. We got to wait another week. And I'm really sorry, uh, but I'm on study leave next week. So you got to wait two weeks. But the big question of Ruth is about God. The God is direct, not directly acting or speaking in the book. God is working in the background as he often is in our lives. And the question is, is God truly good? Is God truly faithful? Is God truly with us and for us when things go badly? And often in our waiting, when we have to wait, that's when we question that the most. You ever had a time where you got to wait? You ever had those moments where you got to wait on a test result? You got to wait for information. You got to wait to see how things pan out. And it's often in our waiting, like with Naomi and Ruth. How stressful was that day for them, right? So as you wait and as you anticipate the last sermon, think of them a little bit. Think of those questions of whether you're really trusting God or not. Because in the waiting, we often ask ourselves, where is our security? Is it really under the wings of God or is it in ourselves? Is it in our finances or our family or our reputation? Are you really trusting the wing of God to take care of you? Or are you after taking care of yourself? Sometimes when you're waiting and when it's out of your hands, you have to kind of wonder, is it my social status? Is it my abilities? And what would it mean for us to lay those things down at the feet of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.